You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week we take a look at a movie we've been looking forward to seeing for a long time. It's a cult favorite among kaiju fans and some film fans as well. 1966's War of the Gargantuas. The name's Bond. James Bond. Hey everybody, it's time yet again for another brand new episode of the Bondzilla podcast. We welcome you to your, into your brains, I guess, because you're, <laughs> wait, it goes to your ears and then your brains make communications mm-hmm. that translate the the sound waves into sounds. Mm-hmm. Isn't it crazy just that that happens? You ever, like, I think about this all the time, that it's just like, we be, we say it's like a miracle that we exist, but right. it truly is like a miracle that like everything works the way it does. <laughs> this is some deep stuff. This is this is the deepest thing you've ever said. Well, I'm Nick. I'm Will. And uh, <laughs> Professor over here. Yeah, you know, we're um, just you know just we want to make you think sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you know. Our Shin Godzilla episode is like one of our most popular episodes, and, that, it's, and it's, that's because we make you think. It's a thinker. It definitely is a thinker. And, yeah. and then other times, you know, we do like episodes like All Monsters Attack where we just are having the time of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's really no there's really no thinking man's bond, though. I mean, I, mean, I guess there's there's arguments. No. No. Because, I'm, I, no, the reason I say it that way, because it's like there's no thinking man's bond because that sounds like the most tedious movie. Yeah. Like the thinking man's bond well that's the thing that's what like you could make the argument that that's what the craig films tried to be sure yeah definitely i guess like more and that's so. why that's why we don't gravitate towards those yeah. i think yeah because they they think thou thou dost think and, too much i mean also to be fair casino rail 67 makes you think about your existence and like why are you watching yeah it, it makes you think not necessarily in any constructive ways but it just makes you think it makes you wonder yeah anything <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, Godzilla this time around. Yes. We're back to kaiju stuff. Yes. Um, no news, except apparently that there is a, uh, Godzilla museum that's, uh, looks pretty cool. And, uh, they're going to build something that you can zip line into Shin Godzilla's mouth. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I think it's funny how Shin really is becoming like the new, like Godzilla mascot. Well, I mean, it is. It's just kind of been the most recent. It had a wide, right. worldwide reach to to an extent. It is like kind of a known entity outside of like the the legendary films. Obviously, it kind of have more of an impact on those like North American shores. But I do think that there's a level of, you know, it's just until there's the next, you know, and I think it's one of those things where until there's the next iteration of Godzilla. It's kind of like the Mario thing where it's like, you know, most of the Mario stuff that we've seen since Odyssey's come out has been just the Odyssey model and we see a lot of Cappy and then whenever but, whenever the next Mario thing comes out there will be kind of an update. But that's like saying like if a new Mario came out and he was like a jacked photo reel like Mario with scars and like just 
what else would be wrong with him? He has a gun. Yeah, and and he has he's, like he's Shadow the Hedgehog. Yeah, or at least like you know, let's keep it. Let's keep it like like you know, maybe not quite a gun, but definitely like a knife yeah. in his like belt. Like like still like like a more. It's like not like a photorealistic gun, but yeah. it still is like kind of like you know a little bit. Maybe more. not a gun, but maybe definitely like a pouch. Yeah, like you know how like in Smash Brothers, Captain Falcon has that like. He has that little uh, like on his like on his uh, render. Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't. He he never uses it. No, but it's there. Right, because so, he's well, but, he's a bounty hunter. But bottom line is what I'm saying is like it would be like if Mo- Nintendo came out with this like alt take of him where he's just, like, radically different. Yeah, and then that became the mascot. Like so, what's funny about the Shin Godzilla being the mascot for me is like because it is such like because that was the thing that like made that movie and that yeah design too is that it, it is such a departure. And such a unique take for Godzilla. So it's interesting that now that is, yeah. at least for the foreseeable future, like the go-to image of the Japanese Godzilla. I mean, it just it really just depends on like what they end up doing with Godzilla next over on right. Japanese shores. Because if the next film maybe doesn't, you know, necessarily not a sequel to Shin, but kind of features similar aspects. See, I, I just can't imagine the next Godzilla project looking like shin no i I can't either so i think that i just think it's one of those things where it is like the next thing because it's like otherwise it's like you're either doing legendary or you're what like what design are you using are you going all the way back to like the? well they usually just kind of do like a generic like yeah like like millenniums like hasty yeah 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 that's kind of like because when i go like i mean obviously my godzilla i think of is an approximate of like the hasty version yeah. of him without the lip flap yeah which <laughs> which um that was only in one that was only in one yeah movie. but i'm just saying that's why it's approximation but, it takes yeah, away the lip flap. but just like the the upright dorsal fins right. like very reptilian looking yeah. like whether it's some version of yeah. that i just yeah i just think it would be different if we did you know like shin was a thing and then like they did like a millennium era style thing where like the next one was like a more traditional look i right. just think that you know, in in this modern age of marketing, you just kind of go based. They're gonna on... have to rebuild that giant Godzilla head, though. They're gonna have to always. They're gonna have to always redo it. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or make it a focal point of the next movie, where Shin Godzilla was a movie within the universe, and then the Godzilla oh, destroys see. it, and then you actually blow it up, and then you build a new Godzilla head. Right. Right. Yeah, that seems like a lot of work. Make it like Scream 4. Right. You, what? No. No. Not at all. I've only seen the ending to Scream 4. You even said it like not knowing what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, I love how you went out on a limb. No, wait. You you said it like make it like Scream 4, and then I could tell in your eyes when you said it that you were just hoping that that was the plot of Scream 4. No, Scream 3 is the one where they go to Hollywood, right? Yes. Okay, maybe more like that, that has a That has a Jay and Silent Bob yes, uh, cameo mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then the twist is, is that it was the Scream the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and what's, like, David Arquette's in them. And then Courtney Cox is I'm in them. I'm looking forward to the documentary about David Arquette Campbell. coming out really soon. What? The, the David Arquette documentary? Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So this is where I'm just going to say this is a ludicrous thing on your part, is to just assume 
that this is something that people would know about, that this would just be something that everybody would be like, oh, yeah, me too. Nobody's going to say that to no, you. I Nobody's going to say like, listen, oh, I, yeah, yeah, I, I can't wait as well. What? What are you talking about? There's a documentary about him and his like revitalization of his wrestling career coming out next week on digital. Okay. Does he wrestle? The, this Don't is, make me ask like 10 questions about yeah, this. He he became world champion of this company, WCW, in 2000, and everybody made fun of him. Mm-hmm. So last year, he basically was like, I'm done with people making fun of me. I'm coming back to wrestling and like proving. Right. That That's what it would do it. Tired of people making fun of me, getting back into wrestling. <laughs> and then, well, there, I mean, like, there's like gonna go over like when he accidentally got a slow throat, slow, slow. You can do it. Throat slit in the match mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Looks really. I mean, the trailer's out there. It's, it's yeah. called "You Cannot Kill David Arquette." That's the title of the movie. I could. Well, <laughs> I bet you could. <laughs> if I tried, that yeah. scream guy can't, which is kind of the plot of those scream movies. Right. Like, yeah. They just can't. Can't yeah. do it. Um. Yeah. So, well, you know, good. Good for David Arquette. Yeah. I guess. Like, I don't think he's going to be in the new Scream. That's a reboot, I think. We'll see. What do you mean, we'll see? I mean, they're always meta, so it could be like, oh. maybe it's like David Arquette It's plays. like secretly a leg sequel. It's yeah. like one of those. I, that's But that's like the whole defining thing about those Scream movies. Yeah. is like they always like do something completely like, you know, they, they do something completely, you know, what if it was like they did like the weird thing where it's like only Scream 1 was... Oh God! But but oh, then there's no. like there's like there's like a in universe reason for it. You know what's funny is that I complain about that like in the modern day context so much, even though that is what the Millennium series was. Yeah. Of Godzilla. But I mean, I think the whole thing is is like the whole Millennium. I mean, I, I also think it's very different for Godzilla, mm-hmm. and I think because it's also very different for like you know. Yeah. Well, I think it bothers me more in the modern context because that's kind of the selling point, right? Whereas like. Godzilla was just kind of like a, I mean, all those movies are spiritual successors right. well, that's, anyway. I mean, and yeah, the whole thing is like, I mean, like even before the millennium era, I mean, that's what 1984 did right. before any of that. It yeah. was a, 1984 was just like, forget all those other monsters, forget all those other things. It's only 54 yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Like they, they did that way before. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it just, it's, it's just different. It, yeah. It, but, but I think it's also one of those things where it's inherently built into the nature of, how these films have been made in the sense that, and it's the same thing for Bond in that sense, because the continuity of anything of that show era, as well as the original Bond era is like so loose where it's like, yeah, right. certain things may have happened, but you know, it's like, you know, every kind of movie is still its own thing. Mm-hmm. So that when those franchises do stuff like that, it's just like, well, okay, this is a different take where it's like when you have something like Halloween or scream or whatever, if I could do Terminator, that, Terminator, yeah. Where, you know, we've had these movies that have been so heavy on its continuity. Um, that's where it kind of can get a little frustrating because part of what we love about that type of stuff is the weird ass shit that happens in the continuity. Yeah, but see, but this, that, that's the thing that bothers me is because there would be other people who would argue that right. that's what makes those things bad. No, no, so I, that's why they love, that's the, no, yeah. why they're in the market for yeah, that's exactly exactly for them. Exactly what I'm saying. Though I I find this is kind of getting onto a completely different subject, but I do find that like that is always just kind of like the immediate like that is like the comfort food, like the candy version of movies. Because I always find that that never satisfies an audience 
Like even the, like the fans who like or right. like get excited that it's like, oh, this is gonna skip all the other ones. I yeah. like I feel like that always cut co- that that comes and goes, like the novelty of that. No, and I, yeah. it's more so the creators behind the scenes who are I mean, to be fair, they push it as well. Yeah. Like the, the, but I, I, it really comes down to the fact that you th- it's like a thing I think that a lot of people think they want. Mm-hmm. But then you watch the movie and you're like, yes, but all the other movies like still exist in real life. Right. Like, it really isn't like it'd be completely different if like we had some messed up apocalyptic world where it was like, OK, we're doing this Terminator movie. So we're literally going to delete Terminator 3 and Salvation from like existence could, could you, where it's like they don't exist. Could anymore. you imagine? But we could do that like but like on an individual basis, like selective memory, like it's just a black like, year episode. Like you could like basically like um you could like choose to take like a like a roofie or something yeah like when you leave the theater so like if you didn't i i had a friend once she said this to me and it was one of these things that it it, it made me simultaneously annoyed and like but it made sense yeah. like i couldn't argue the point cuz she was just like why like you know cuz she wasn't she wasn't a big movie watcher yeah cuz there's like this thing going around where everybody's like Name like five movies that you've seen more than three or four times. Yes, like all on Twitter and stuff. And then my reaction, and I wasn't the only one. A lot of people on film Twitter and everything said this too. But my reaction was like only five. Like, and it and it was one of those things where it, I did have to remember like rewatching a movie that you like it, it, it is something that you know. Not everybody necessarily yeah, well, does. We, you and I, we watch movies we don't necessarily like. Yeah, exactly. Like, like rewatching, <laughs> <So true. laughs> rewatching movies we like That's is true. like second nature to us. Right? Yeah. It it is funny, like how often, like you know, I will rewatch a movie. Like honestly, there probably be times where I watch a movie. There's probably a movie that I did like, and then a movie I didn't like, and I probably see the movie I didn't like more times. <laughs> well, then, I mean, because I think like sometimes it's a weird thing because the movie I like. Like I've retained and appreciated yeah. so much that my need to rewatch it, where it's kind of like that morbid curiosity with movies that you don't like, so you just go back and rewatch it. And be like I like this couldn't have been that dumb, really. Right. And then you watch it again, you're like, yeah, or, it is that dumb. Or I'll have the situation where like like a movie that I kind of a movie beats me down into kind of liking it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah, one of those yeah. things where I revisit something, and it's just like this is so you know, this is so dumb or it's like, I kind of start looking into the things I like, like yeah. as opposed to like, you know, like I, I can be like a movie that like late career M night Shyamalan movies are, right. are kind of kind of like that. Right. Or like just a thing where it's like, I, I know the flaws and I will like accept the flaws, but like the more I watch it, the more I take in like, yeah. the stuff I really like about mm-hmm. the movie. Like that sort of stuff I think is, is why sometimes revisiting those types of movies are, you know, Good, but but the what I why I brought that up is because so my friend said, she's like, why would I like watch like go out of my way to watch a movie like if I like or like watch so many movies like what if I don't like it I'm like what do you mean he's like well if I don't like it that's like two hours I'm never gonna get back, and then th- that was such a ludicrous statement to me but at the same time I was like I mean yeah I guess like you're right she she was right. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna get that time back. Yeah. You like in a way, I guess you could argue that, especially for people who are not movie people like us. Like I guess you could argue that you wasted your time. <laughs> like, and I, and I also think the thing too is, um, 
you know, again, going off topic, but I think another thing about that is, is even the, the manner in which you watch it, you know what I mean? Cause if it's like, I think we've talked about like, you know, paying for a movie or you pay for the DVD or you pay for the movie theater. Right. Right. It's like very different than like, you know, in an experience for us at least where it's like, if I have a, a bunch of stuff on a streaming service, I'm paying a certain amount for, I'm going to take a movie in very differently in mm. that sense. And I think that there's that element too, where it's like, you know, if people are maybe people are more willing to watch if they're hanging out with friends because they're still justifying those those the time spent. Yeah. Uh, but it's like you know like uh, I just watched this like 1993 Disney Three Musketeers movie and like if I had paid to see it if I had paid for the Blu-ray or something it would be like oh man like that was kind of a waste of money but like seeing it free but, on but that's service, a, that I mean Blu-ray is a steep price though. Well, yeah. No, but I'm just like, saying if like, you if rented I, it if I rent even if I rented it yeah you know, it's just like if it, see I don't I don't like I'm kind of in the mood where like. I mean, a rental is a rental. I mean, that's three dollars. Like, I mean, it just depends, you know. Eh, I mean, it's no. But I could have put that three dollars to something else. It's three dollars. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't like to get into people's finances, but three dollars. Yeah, I can handle. Come on, like, yeah, it's like. Listen, I'm just saying that I think that there's just a sense. I was gonna say, I I was gonna say for like other people, it's like, yeah, I mean, like that's like two beers, but nobody's getting two beers anymore. So, but like, yeah, it's it's like that's that's three bucks. You can you can find that and change I just in your think, house. I just think that there's even an element of just paying for something as opposed to just watching it on a whim. But I have this thing about comics too. Like I, I like I, I one of the best things about comics are like I'm talking about like individual like issues. Yeah. Like if you go to a store, it, it's one of the reasons it's like the best media. One of the best mediums to engage in quickly is because the investment is not that much. So like. You go in and you're like, let's say it's three to five dollars. And you pick up like an issue and one. You, and you pick up an issue one, and like maybe you'll like it, maybe you don't. And then what the worst is is that you you drop down three bucks yeah. onto it, and then maybe you wait for a trade to come out or you'll come back for it. And it's just like, but you're right. Like the thing about like the theater, like you can't do that with a movie at it, like a store. Right. Like you're right because no, with no movie, what I've only done it once. I've only done it with the movie Prisoners, and that was because. I'm pretty sure I'm going to like this movie. Yeah. And that was the only movie that I've ever n- never seen. I was at a Best Buy and I saw a copy of it for like 15 bucks. I'm like, I'll, I'll just buy it. Yeah. Um, but I never would do that for another movie I have never seen. Yeah. Like, I think it's funny. You I, would, I would rent it, go to the theater, but I wouldn't just cold buy. I, I, think, I think the only movie... I, I've definitely... I've maybe done that. I think the two movies I've done that for are Casino Royale 67 because I had to do it for right. the podcast and then Streets of Fire mm-hmm. uh, which I had like heard music from but I'd never seen the movie right. and I, I was like okay like I kind of like this soundtrack I feel like and it's also like weird 80s pseudo musical with like bikers and weird shit going on right. like, I'm down to like this movie mm-hmm. yeah so I mean that that's but I mean I think it's, it's an interesting and I, I think it just leads more into kind of whether or not where you are, it just kind of leads into what we were talking about in our last kind of episodes about, you know, the future of cinema and in, engaging in movies now and stuff like that and the future of the theater. And I think that all kind of adds to it, too. I was talking to a uh, uh, pot of the friend cast, um, uh, Patrick, and uh, we, were, we, were, uh, we, were, we were talking about it starting to, to hit us, the not being able to, like, go to, like, a matinee. Yeah. To a movie which is i mean to be fair like four or five months in to this 
it's pretty good. Like, you know, because, you know, I've been to the drive in a couple times and, you know, been watching a couple other movies like at home. But like recently it was kind of like and it's not even weirdly, it's not even like new movies. It's just kind of like, oh, just uh, I would be in the habit of like on a Saturday morning or any morning if I wasn't working, just going like first thing in the morning. Nobody would be there. You catch a movie yeah, and catch good... up on something. And it's like, so the fact that like, you know, I haven't done that in, I don't, I'm not, I have to think about if I've done it at all this year, um, frankly. Um, but, you know, so there's that. So one of the things I'm planning on doing is I'm definitely um, going to be getting way more and more into VOD and just renting things. Because, and we mentioned this, I think, on the last episode was I, I really do feel that like ever since this host thing happened with Shudder, there's been way more chatter about this is coming out on VOD. This is coming out on VOD. Yeah. Like I and maybe it's because like now like there's some acclimation going on with like um how we're you know, what we're gonna do going forward that I think maybe there's a little bit more of a networking of like movies that are coming out on VOD. Honestly that that that's too um with Honestly, as much as I kind of joked about it before, mm-hmm. am, I, am I good? Can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, as much as I joked about it before, uh, that again, that David Arquette doc, it's like one of those things where maybe if it was like kind of had that limited release mm-hmm. of theaters a couple weeks, and maybe I would have just like, oh, I'm sure people will enjoy it. But I just kind of think that there was this discussion, especially within the wrestling community, about it coming out on VOD. And I think that that kind of got me pumped for it. So I think that there is kind of a realm. And even me, it's like I, I definitely, you know, I've been on the Disney Plus train for, for quite a while, as you know. Um, but I also have been looking a lot more personally into stuff on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And even stuff I know is included with Prime. But, you know, I just was like, I kind of was in the mood to watch A Fish Called Wanda the other week. And I was just like, you know what? I'll That's the thing. I'll pay the three to four bucks to, to, to put it uh Well, something else you can watch a movie on is another streaming service. Yes. The coveted, most popular of the streaming services, HBO Max. Definitely the weirdest Uh of the the HBO Max is the weirdest of the streaming services. Um, So it just there's a whole lot going on with that launch that that was just not not totally up on on the levels of where Disney Disney Plus and whoa 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 what'd you do? I didn't do anything. That was me. <laughs> uh, anyway, go ahead. Uh, it definitely had a little bit of a... Whoa, 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 whoa. You did something. I didn't do anything. You must have. I have not done a thing. Yeah. I've just been talking. I did not. Listen. All right. I'll start over. Mm-hmm. HBO Max definitely had one of the weirdest launches of any of these very specific studio streaming services. Um, mostly because it was like, you know, HBO is one of those big names that people pay attention to. So the Warner Media Group or whatever we want to call it mm-hmm. um, decided instead of doing Warner Brothers Plus or a Warner Time Warner type of deal, they just decided to go with HBO Max, which made people confused because there's already stuff around, you know, HBO Now and HBO itself and paying for that separately. And then there was also like, you know, they had another streaming service in DC Universe. It was like a whole mess. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, obviously the Disney Plus thing has even gone more spectacularly than even Disney expected. And I think, you know, Peacock's got this angle of being free from some of its content. And I think that's kind of gotten people 
uh, interested enough to just kind of look. Mm-hmm. Um, but HBO Max is kind of like it's it's. I don't know still how people feel about the service, but we did use it for our episode yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Well, um, whatever they did, I hope it was all it was worth all the trouble and all the all the uh, unnecessary layoffs that happened. So we'll yeah. see. <laughs> is it worth it now? Have your goddamn streaming service. Oh boy. Yeah, that's a whole other But uh, but you know, uh, silver lining is that it did provide today's episode, as Nick said, and uh, th- this has been uh, one that I think uh, kind of like you know I-, I think one of the things we'll talk about more so in it it, it- it's this kind of like um this fan favorite i don't know really how else to say it i mean like this is the one where you know just i think because the there's no real marquee name attached to it but definitely has way more of um of a of a legacy than i think a lot of people would give it credit for and uh that is the 1966 toho kaiju film the war of the gargantuas not gargantuans yeah which everybody does i everybody mean does. yeah everybody always like says gargantuans gargantuas like um, it's gargantuas though yes it, it, it um um yeah this was one i was definitely very keen on seeing mm-hmm. um because just to, i mean this is kind of going ahead a little bit but you know all the other show us stuff that we've seen you know as we've gone to these kind of past the the whole godzilla canon the other stuff that we've kind of gone to in the Showa era are like for monsters we've already seen. Right. Like we've seen Mothra and Rodan and stuff like that. And I think that it was very intriguing to see one of these other kind of kaiju movies that really didn't have much of an impact on, on the Godzilla Toho canon outside of being uh, mentioned in, you know, the Millennium Era. It had a brief mention and that was kind of the first like thing I'd ever really seen of it. I know we talked about it previously in in very small chunks on the show mm-hmm. but i was very intrigued to kind of see well what kind of movie would this be that like had you know no really continuity connection with the main godzilla toho canon yeah because i mean there is that whole other showa adjacent legacy like with the godzilla franchise like such as like Mostly Honda, like you know, directed cool. films like Varin, mm-hmm. um, Amanda, uh, which I believe was Atragon. I believe that yeah. was the movie that it was in, and then Space Amoeba. Um, so yeah, th- so there there is this kind of like you know, you're right. It, it's kind of nice to go into the Showa era and then like you know experience it as an era. But um, th- this is one of the bigger titles that I think, especially within kaiju fandom has uh stood the test of time and so and and it was always one of the ones other than us joking about always like having to go back and you know uh watch the king kong uh toho and uh with uh, king kong escapes uh this was always one of the other ones where uh everybody was like you know every time we mentioned it there seemed to be like some like ooh can't wait for that one or yeah. like everybody seems to talk about that one in a, in a weird way more so than the original mothra or rodan and and you know i think we had talked about it with those movies i think even though they have had their own independent appearances i think they're more um known for you know having like their more lasting legacy within the godzilla franchise rather than their own films indeed and i would say that the other thing about it is that i think also we talk about that those rodan and mothras are very early on in kind of 
you know, the Showa era timeline, you know, where obviously like Rodan is like really like the second one after after Gojira and Mothra is also, you know, very early on mm-hmm. in that. And I think that what was intriguing about realizing that like War of the Gargantuans was what, 1966, mm-hmm. was that we were going to be in the midst of like kind of almost a peak Showa era moment. Like mm-hmm. this is a right around like when we were getting, you know, like... Ghidra the three-headed monster and you know Ibira and like all that all those movies are like right around the same time and that's kind of a peak time even stuff like Invasion of Astro Monster which you know has its issues it kind of is iconic in its own sense with, right. with the with the with the aliens and stuff like that so I think it was very intriguing to kind of see go back to kind of again that kind of peak early you know you know, early Godzilla canon and, and kind of see, again, another movie within that timeline. Well, to kind of, like, get into where we're at in the in the timeline here, I mean, this is the year right after Invasion of Astro Monster, Invasion of Astro Monster, which was 1965. Um, but before we talk about War of the Gargantuas, we have to talk about its predecessor movie because technically uh, this film is a sequel yes. um, to uh, the... Um, to 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 another Toho kaiju film, uh, Frankenstein versus Baragon, or otherwise known as Frankenstein conquers the world. So, um, you know, a little bit, kind of, just a little tiny history into that wild movie. Yeah, because we, that, we've that talked can... a little bit about that mm-hmm. way back in the King Kong versus Godzilla episode. Yeah. Um, for those, for just kind of like a really brief, uh, reminder that Frankenstein, uh, um, like a, kind of along with King Kong was often in the pot for like, you know, that they wanted to do some sort of Tohoized version of them. And actually even before then, there was some talk of doing more of like a monster brawler type of movie with Frankenstein, even in the States. And it didn't really come to fruition. It gained no traction. And then eventually the script and the idea found its way all the way over here uh, to to Toho. And uh, um, it eventually um, made its way onto the screen. But it was one of those things where it went back and forth, this complicated history. Like, it's funny because there's so much we talked about how King Kong had kind of like bounced all over the place, like with Toho always constantly trying to do like some film with King Kong. Frankenstein's actually in a weird way, not, um, not that, uh, not too dissimilar, a little bit different because I think that obviously Toho had always had its eyes on King Kong, even like, you know, back in the day, um, you know, even during like, you know, the, the, um, you know, the original Godzilla film, they always wanted to do a King Kong movie. Frankenstein was just kind of one of those properties where they're like, oh, like maybe we can do something with it, but they never quite found the idea. Right. That's, that's just like an option, but yeah. like, you know, with King Kong, they definitely had like a vision because mm-hmm. they definitely knew this is something we want to work with. Whereas Frankenstein was again, like it was like on the board and they would always look at it, you know, with the finger to their chin and be like, what could we do? Right, right. I mean, I mean, I, and I think there were even... Like um a, like a Abira Horror of the Deep I think was originally uh there was some talks that that was going to be a Frankenstein right because um, that like you know maybe a Frankenstein and then that kind of went to King Kong and mm-hmm. then it, and then it went to Godzilla right now so um so Frankenstein in a weird way has that under has that um uh underreported uh legacy of just being kind of tossed around Toho all the time and until eventually uh, they were able to come up with this film that basically involved 
uh, Frankenstein, you know, kaijuizing himself yeah. <laughs> some sort of way, and then um, facing off against uh, another favorite of the podcast, Baragon, which was uh, the uh, first official appearance of Baragon. Um, and uh, so that that's a bit of a fun one where this is kind of like his, you know, his first appearance. Yeah, his, his own history, too. But I looked up briefly about, like, of this movie. Th- this is a crazy movie i don't know have you did you do any reading on not like, not in the original so the so to i will give you the brief kind of like it in it's a movie that involves um nazis nazi soldiers in world war ii <laughs> you're right it, okay it involves nazi soldiers in world war ii um I'm going to pull this up because I can't get this wrong, but like, I, I believe I just want to just, um, just remind myself. Um, yes. Okay. So I, I am right. So in world war two, not in uh, Nazi officers, um, steal the heart of Frankenstein from a scientist for their own nefarious purposes. Um, but you know, because they are, you know, kind of, uh, in the midst, they were in the midst of losing a battle, um, and, uh, but we're able to give some Japanese scientists, like we're able to give like the Japanese, the heart instead for like safekeeping. Mm-hmm. And then, so the Japanese had it and they were about to start their own experiments on it until that one day where they was in Hiroshima. Oh, <laughs> no. <when> the- <laughs> So it's a movie that basically involves the Japanese getting their hands and doing experiments on Frankenstein's heart the day that Hiroshima is bombed. And then it basically leads on to, I mean, and then the movie is the movie itself. It results in this kaiju creature uh, that is known as Toho's Frankenstein. Um, That was like, and honestly, it's one of those, like, you know, even if you get past that beginning, like, it doesn't get much better than that. I mean, that's that's definitely amongst the more wild opening yeah. sequences of any of these that we've seen or heard about. It's funny because I'm actually... Because in- it's also, I would say really quick, it's also very intriguing because any other... Like, we've definitely had reflections on World War II and mm-hmm. these other Godzilla films, you know, in 54 is among them, but... It really hasn't really been that direct. It's usually been like in the more allegorical sense. Whereas like yeah. that really is like no, you're really kind of distinctly referencing that history and that the 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 trouble that comes with that history. Well, this is de- this is something that I think I I'll, I'll want to dive into as we talk about the movie. It's interesting kind of when I was doing my reading up on Frankenstein Conquers the World and thinking about uh, War of the Gargantuas and then also thinking of the, the, the Godzilla films because even with Frankenstein Conquers the World, uh, it, it, it seemed from at least just the reading of it and just kind of like delving into a little bit. I didn't get a chance to watch the whole film, but it, it, it's a thoroughly plotted movie. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a real science fiction at like thought out science fiction aspect to it, um, which I think is interesting. One one of the other things that it's about it is that, um, and as we lead into War of the Gargantuas, is that we are entering this period of the UPA co-produced um, right um, Godzilla film because because we and, and uh, I know that Invasion of Astro Monster mm-hmm. is one of those because that was a very big part of that film. Um, 
is what, or that as we talked about that movie was kind of again the co-production and you know including an American actor and all that sort of fun jazz. So we're right in yes, we're right in that mm-hmm. era. Yeah, and um, also uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World also starred Nick Adams. Um, so that's a back-to-back appearance between that film and Astro Monster, and then eventually that led into uh, this um, pseudo sequel, uh, War for the Gargantuas. So the this. War for the Gargantuas fit the bill that was very common for Showa-era Godzilla films. It was, you know, they they hopped right to it. And they didn't they didn't miss a beat, and they're like, all right, we're going to bang out a sequel to this film real quick. Um, and it was funny because this was kind of during a period where Ashiro Honda was also, like, renegotiating his kind of, like, director deal with Toho. Uh, there was some talk that he wasn't going to come back, but he ended up um, being able to come back. Which makes sense, too, because this is also right around the era where we get our first Jun Fukuda film as well. So I definitely think there's more... You know, it's like Honda has kind of been really seemingly pumping out all these kaiju movies and, and like kind of doing all of them uh, to a certain degree. And that is really interesting to know that there was kind of a contract negotiation going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, it, it's just his future uh, with it wasn't. And then, you know, and it's funny. And then that compounded with, you know, Toho doing this little experiment with this UPA partnership and everything. Um, So, but ultimately Honda did uh, end up um, fully directing uh, the, the film. Um, so originally, uh, the film was going to be uh, called the Frankenstein Brothers, um, because and that that's what's really funny because like you know it is one of those things where you kind of go back and you think well it can't definitely be Frankenstein that must be like an American translation of it. it's like no I mean that that it was Frankenstein yeah I, I mean they they fully made it just their version of Frankenstein um, but uh, this movie was um, the Frankenstein I, Brothers does sound like. Like an animated sitcom. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what makes it funny. It definitely sounds like it could have been like a Hanna-Barbera show. Yeah, well, it appears right after the Rodance. Yes. Like, uh, it was always in that slot right afterwards. <laughs> definitely, okay. The Frankenstein Brothers, definitely like one of the offshoots of Hanna-Barbera's success with Scooby-Doo, where they're like solving mysteries together as the Frankenstein Brothers. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, there's also, they also have like a teenage girl and a talking rabbit. Mm-hmm. that's like that's the that's the plot of the show mm-hmm. yeah i'd watch it um so they get to work on this film um war of the gargantuas and uh they um and this was a film that like with over the course of a, like less than a handful of months like you know mm-hmm. honda um banged out like you know all the dramatic stuff like i believe like within like a month um and then uh they they finished up all of the uh um all of the uh the the special effects and monster stuff about like a week later not a week later like a month or two later and um so in terms of the production they just kind of um you know did the godzilla thing and uh banged it out um one of the other big things that uh on set was that um you know this being upa production there was always that okay we're gonna get like our one american star uh, yeah. in, in the film. Now, this time around, um, they were bringing in actor Russ Tamblin as Dr. Paul Stewart. Um, and uh, this is one of the few times I think I've ever seen on doing research for any of these movies uh, a, a bit of drama between on the set yeah. uh, between, the, uh, between the actor and the director. So, um, Honda and Tamblin didn't get along at all Mm -hmm. um it it was 
very well reported that Tamblin had no respect uh, for the material. He thought the the script and the dialogue was terrible um, and would often improv dialogue, would do basically never listen to instruction from Honda, um, do the opposite of what Honda said or just do did what he thought wa- was better. And um, it, it just led to the, the two um, and, and really, quite frankly, the rest of the crew and cast not really caring for Tamblin um, himself um, to the point where... Um, uh, they, um, they, uh, sorry, they, they, um, not intended. I can't speak today. Um, they considered replacing him with, uh, Nick Adams again, Mm. uh, to, um, to, you know, that would have made three films that, that, that he was in. So that was, so, you know, that was like the biggest piece of drama that happened. And one of the things that's interesting about that, that was, that is interesting is because, you know, I, I have talked often about in these films about how Toho directs the native Japanese actors versus like the American actors and yeah. how that has translated on screen. And, you know, there's almost I hate to say I hate to say it, but there's almost like an understanding of like when I see kind of what the results of American actors being in these films. Yeah. Uh I can almost see where somebody like Tamblin is coming from where now that to be, but also to be fair, like Nick Adams, especially in invasion of Astro monster, uh, pretty much holds like holds his own. He, he's one of the few American actors, especially in all these films that really, um, escapes like the trappings that we see that American actors often have, um, in the Toho films. And I think that there's a part of it too, where, um, I was kind of quickly just looking around, you know, a- aspects of the movie and, you know, the other, the main, some of our main other Japanese casts are like regulars mm-hmm. of these movies. Like I think uh, like the other main Japanese scientist dude is, like was like one of the main leads in Rodan. And I think the, 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 the girl scientist has also been in a couple of these movies as well Mm -hmm. uh so i think there's definitely more of a comfortability there where it's like definitely rust and rust tamblin also is one of those things where i definitely like recognized him Mm -hmm. because you know it's not that you know it's like he a couple years later he'd be like in west side story and he would go on to have a recurring role in like the twin peaks series um but even before this like he was definitely like a real working hollywood actor um and i can't speak to i'm sure nick adam was nick adams was too but it definitely seemed like rust i think he he has quite a like a, a filmography yeah. from when I looked him up. Yeah, I mean, like he, he definitely I think was more of a kind of, you know, he definitely was definitely probably doing it for for a good amount of money or something like that. It just mm-hmm. didn't seem like and 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 it's one of those things where it's is always interesting because, you know, when you have that, you know, you've definitely had times of like people going over to different countries to do a movie. Usually, it's for, you know, money or, right, or right. it's like. If you do this, we'll let you do this movie, that type of thing. Yeah, and you know, and and also just because there's this production company experiment too going yeah. on, uh, there's right. a little bit of that. I I honestly just think it's kind of like, especially in those early days, it, yeah. it's just the culture barrier. Culture barrier. Where I think it's like a little bit easier to kind of more naturalistically, um, you know, direct like the Japanese actors versus the there. There just seems to be something lost in the in this in the way in which dialogue is delivered with the American actors versus mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the American actors often feel um, cartoonish 
right. uh, in the way that even the uh, even the exaggerated Japanese actors don't quite feel. Yeah. So it, it, it is an interesting it is an interesting uh, thing to kind of look back on. But um, the thing about Tamlin, Tamlin did did kind of have that. Um, he kind of came back around to it where in his later career and it's obviously this always happens when like you know you you get later in the career and then like the film that was kind of a dumb thing you did becomes a cult thing he's kind of warmed up to the movie and has kind of looked back on it it's like oh yeah that that's uh, you know yeah that, that, i don't mind that being part of my legacy mm-hmm. if, it, if it's part of it yeah. so um so there's that um uh one speaking of you had mentioned uh returning um um, family, Toho family, was uh, Hiro Nakajima, um, who was one of the um, suit performers uh, in the uh, in the Toho canon, um, did a lot of performances of Godzilla in the Godzilla suit, um, played uh, one of our gargantuas, uh, Gaira, who is our villain gargantua in, in this film, our villain kaiju, um, did express that out of many of the kaiju that he performed, this was amongst one of his favorites due to um, just the uh, comfortability and flexibility of the suit, and it made it one of like the easiest to perform in. Um, for re- obvious reasons that we'll get into. And that will, I think, lead into... It's been quite some time since we've been able to introduce a new monster. Yes. And we have two monsters because it's the Gargantuas. So, yeah, uh, th- right. these are our monsters. There are Sanda and Gyra, the uh, Gargantuas, or the Frankensteins, yeah. as, as they're called. Um, Nick, it's been a while since you've described some monsters. Uh, why don't you uh, lay it on the audience? They're two giant, really hairy slash mossy caveman looking mm-hmm. things. Like they're generally like you know generally size of a kaiju, very humanoid, which was super interesting because outside of King Kong, there really isn't that many humanoid kaiju in the canon. Right. Uh, it's very either monster or animal esque or robot esque. And you have like stuff like Jet Jaguar, who yes is humanoid, but definitely has a more robotic yeah. way of going. Whereas like our two gargantuas, our two Frankensteins, are definitely very humanoid. They're very and you can tell with, with just the movement, it's very natural for the superformers because they get to just be human human like. They get mm-hmm. to just run like humans and punch like humans and and uh, so yeah, so we have um, the first one. Our villain is um, we said Gyra. Gyra, he comes from the sea, so he kind of has a very kelp algae look, a very green look to him. Um, you know, and it's kind of like again, like the face is very kind of animated caveman, just the exaggerated kind of brow and chin and kind of teeth, and he's got a mop of hair as well. Um, and then, uh, San- Sanda, Sanda, I was going to say Sandra, mm-hmm. Sanda, uh, is very much the same except Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And then we also, I mean, do we talk about the, the younger form that we see? Oh yeah, I guess there's like a baby. Yeah, there's like a flashback where there's like a baby form which looks more monkeyish. Yeah, than yeah. Else. I'm a little unclear. Well, we'll get. I'll get into that like when we talk about the actual movie itself. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was interesting because, and you know, as um, Nakajima has stated, this is one of the few times where you truly get like the closest like human humanoid like Sasquatchy 
type of monster because obviously like all the most of the kaiju have human shapes in the terms of like they're all bipedal and yeah. like uh, the and, and stuff like that and it's clearly men in suits but this is the one where it, it feels like like a dude like you, you, yeah. you know what i mean we're kind of getting into ultraman territory on yeah. this one where um and and it's and it's interesting to see um yeah uh and it's also funny because despite you know them you know they have like really good lasting appearances in this movie it's funny that it took a minute to kind of remember their names because they don't really get like that big of like an introduction like name wise like they kind of just casually drop the names later on in the movie as gyra and sanda and then they're kind of mostly um given there's a lot about the monsters within the context of the film there's a lot that it's it's there's a lot that's explained, but also a lot that's left up to the imagination about them, yeah. which I which I found very interesting. Right, and it's like because a lot of time it really is the way the movie presents it. It's like green one is evil monster, right. brown one is good monster, right. like, and that's the way they kind of discuss it as well. But the one thing I will say, and and this kind of comes down to the art of the suit performance and then also maybe the power of the directing of the movie in general is that so we're kind of getting into a monster design that's like admittedly not my is not one i gravitate to like even if it's humanoid i I gravitate more so to like like the jet jaguars like the least like human uh like the the least human character like yeah. or like um the like even the closest I'll get to like something that's like uh like that is like something like Kong right. which and like even Kong is really not what I gravitate to you kind of have to do it well for my yeah. thing like you know I I I always like robots lizards like yeah uh like creatures like that yeah no I I think it's because it's like more exciting I mm-hmm. mean like the King Kong is easy to do because he's a giant monkey but like the difficulty you have in that is you got to make sure that the giant monkey has this personality or else he's just a giant monkey and i think it's one of the things where when you have something as crazy as like a Ghidorah with the three heads or you have to be as you creative with like a giant moth Mm -hmm. you know you kind of inject kind of the mythology and the personality within that whereas i think that when you have something more humanoid the the problem you can run into and i'm not saying yet that this is a problem that this movie had or, or kong movies have is that you very easily have well this is easy because it's it's like human-esque mm-hmm. so it's like let's just do human-esque stuff yeah. with it I, I, yeah it, it's definitely that's a good way of putting it is that maybe the 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 fantasy barrier of like let's say if it's like a godzilla suit isn't there like when you look at something like these creatures it, it's easy just to be like oh that's like a dude yeah um you know so uh, again uh not always the case but it's something that maybe that maybe the way that I look at it. Um, so anyway, so the reason I brought that, oh, and the other thing I was going to say is like, and even if you have like an Abira, there, there's just an inherent silliness yes. that's enjoyable about the fact that he's a giant lobster. Right. Um, and so, I think, it, again, too, it's like, and I think we see this in more of the gargantuas, I think, again, kind of a blessing and a curse you have is you kind of have, when you're doing the monkey thing or when you're doing these kind of, again, the cavemen looking at these humanoids, you also have, their face can be very easy to express, but again, you can use that more more of a cheat if you're not careful. Right, right. Whereas like Godzilla and even Abira, there's kind of a dissonance because they're like fully suited and they're not, you right. know, they're, they're, even their head designs are so different that again, you kind of have to be creative in how you get their specific personalities well, across. So, well, despite that, like that this isn't like a creature design that I necessarily gravitate to, I have to admit that I, I was very, I, I grew to like them very quickly and honestly, I think part of the reason could be is because 
it's been some time since we've really ever seen like a creature like a humanoid creature like this both in design and in suit performance too like i I think it's because we're we're so used to and inundated with like the creativity of like a Ghidorah or an Anguirus or or, going to Biolanti and stuff like that when they get like really crazy right so the fact that you know that we do just have kind of like more human sasquatchy like type of creatures it was a it was a i was surprised at how welcome of a change it was i really think and i think this is going more i think i want to talk about it more specifically when we get into the movie but i really think it's it's a credit to the suit performances that really brings them across Mm -hmm. and i think that i i think it's a great set of suit performances within this movie um, that really brings together those two creatures and their relationship and their relationship to other characters in the movie and kind of the story. I really think that with lesser suit performers or even a lesser, I think even a lesser director who maybe doesn't know, you know, how to work in those suit performances so well at this mm-hmm. time. Cause even with, you know, Honda and his special effects team, you know, they definitely have had the legacy of, you know, all the way up through Astro Monster at this point. So I think that there's a kind of great combination of these two performers that have the experience, the directors and the directors that have the experience. I think that really brings the most out of both of these gargantuas. You're right. It, it is a testament to them, not only because I think that obviously the reason that the two performances in the Godzilla films are are so impactful a lot of the times is because I do think that there's that limitation. Obviously, there's like that adage that, oh, the artistic limitations actually make it sing a little bit more. So when you kind of get all your faculties like together and you're able to use like your entire body and everything, you know, sure, it's probably more comfortable and you feel like you have more freedom, but, you know, is it going to be as interesting and the fact that it is, it is like, you know, very impressive. And, you know, um, the two suit performers who are um, Haru Nakajima and Yu Sakita um, both definitely deserve props for that. Two things I want to mention before we get into the actual film. One is another bit of Godzilla uh, Toho lore. Uh, fun fact is that this is the first official appearance of the Mazer Cannon mm. uh, in the Toho films, which will definitely become a Toho Godzilla staple. Are the the Mazer Cannons? Um, and um, the last thing I wanted to mention, because normally this would be an aftermath thing, but I think this is the m- kind of something to talk about. The reason that we are talking about this movie, and we'll kind of like paint going into it a little bit, is just the cult nature of this film so not only is this like a film that has gone on to be a cult favorite of um kaiju fandom uh but also it kind of has this like sweet little um this sweet little uh um place in the heart of just movie making in general where some of like the biggest names that we have talked about on this podcast and off mic too are huge fans of, of the film. So obviously, some of like the easier ones that we can talk about is like Guillermo del Toro. When we were talking about our Pacific Rim episode, mentioned War of the Gargantuas being like a major influence on um, on uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah. Um, which, frankly, when you like watch War for the Gargantuas, definitely. Uh, has a more direct influence than even the Godzilla films do. Like mm-hmm. Pacific Rim, uh, the first one makes way more sense um, when you uh, watch War for the Gargantuas because really, like the Godzilla thing is only tangentially related because it's like oh, giant monsters. But then when you watch War for the Gargantuas, you're like oh, okay, I can see it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, now, but um, 
and then a not so surprising one, I think this is going to make you laugh, but not surprising at all. Another person who has claimed to be a huge fan of the movie is none other than Nick Cage. Um, has stated to be a huge fan of the of the film. Yeah. Um, but uh, two of the other bigger names that I thought was very interesting, uh, one, Brad Pitt, uh, during a um, segment during the 2012, I believe, Academy Awards. It was one of those, like, oh, what's your memory of films? Like, they were doing one of those things. Yeah. Uh, Brad Pitt claims that War, for the Garg- War of the Gargantuas was the first film that he saw in theaters as a kid and maybe not in theaters, but it was one of the first films he saw as a kid. And uh, it was like, you know, one of the movies that like just captured his imagination. He's like, oh, I need to be in movies. Interesting. Um, which just makes you love Brad Pitt. Yeah. Like, like even more like I, I you know, I, I always get the sense that Brad Pitt has a real good sense of humor about himself. Yes. So yeah. like that. that I always think about when there. he talks about like his early career and like the films like he just missed out on or, like, mm-hmm. or like him talking about him getting that like really small role in uh in um true romance and mm-hmm. stuff like that i think he he kind of has a nice reflection on him himself and his career do, do you ever hear the story about his deadpool 2 cameo uh yes where he's like he, he didn't want to get paid anything other than ryan reynolds getting him a cup of coffee yeah like that that's the that <laughs> yeah. was his payment to mm-hmm. have a cameo in it. i thought that was funny um so there is that and then the biggest name on the list that i thought that was really funny was quentin tarantino of course um huge huge fan of of the film to the point that uh he used war for the gargantuas as a reference in kill bill volume two uh in the scene where the bride versus um uh the um i forget the the other the the other one's name uh the um what's the she fights the lady in the in the trailer i forget the character's oh, yeah. name um daryl hannah's character yeah, Hanna, yeah. um but um she uh so he used that as a reference for uh them fighting in, in which he called like i want this scene to be war the uh, the war of the blonde gargantuas in this film like so uh and so he huge fan of, of the film and use that as a uh, as a reference so i thought that was really funny and uh, oh go ahead no go ahead, no what were you gonna say well, i was gonna say he also cast uh russ tamblin right, right. in mm-hmm. Jan- Django unchained yeah that was one of the credits i saw on, <laughs> on the thing and i just wanted to confirm it was the right one but yeah so the, the re- so the reason i wanted to mention that is because i thought that the legacy nature of it went deeper than i thought because i think oftentimes we always say that like a lot of these films like oh it's got like a cult following and everything and the fandom enjoys it but this was one of the first ones where it's like oh like you know often it felt like you know big name people in the industry kept calling back to it so yeah. I, and and i thought that was that was interesting and i think i mean um, honestly though it kind of makes sense in the sense that this was American co-production, and mm. so probably access to that's a good point. A, uh, yeah, a dub of it, or 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 the vi- ability for people to play this movie was probably more readily available than mm. say something like you know in a beer or something it, like it, that. It was often double billed with Invasion of Astro Monster, but yeah. but you're right because I think that because another because I think the only other film that people talk about in this capacity is maybe King Kong versus Godzilla which again is also very distinctly one that has a very specific you know dubbed version mm-hmm. that I think people definitely gravitate to yeah 
Um, so it was just it was just interesting to not only uh, find something that, that was a cult favorite amongst the fans, but also um, amongst movies and filmmakers and stars at large. Um, so uh, let's keep that in mind as we go in and talk about the movie itself. Here is the War of the Gargantuas. <laughs> The newspapers are saying it's the Frankenstein we raised here. It's pure speculation on their part. They've no proof at all. But, Doctor, it must resemble our Frankenstein, and the people will blame us. So it is up to us to prove it's some other monster. Now, listen to me. Our Frankenstein can't live in water. Must we get involved in this? Yes, we must. Otherwise, we'll be blamed. So we must find out. If he were still alive, he'd stay well away from the cities. You can be sure. Now look at these. Frankenstein's supposed to have made these? That's right. And in a very remote part of the mountains. I think we should investigate. You can go if you want to. I'll check the boat. And we're back. Yeah. Um, Time for some warring of Gargantuas. <laughs> Uh, wow. Wait, to be back in the Showa era again, yeah. uh, the, the, this was, this was definitely a treat. Um, and you know, I'm just kind of, I'm going to kind of just jump into this one. Pretty good. I definitely dug this I, movie. I, this, this one was quite the, like this, it is going to sound lame, but like when, when we talk about our entire legacy of talking about all these movies, this movie felt like home. Yes. <laughs> it I really, definitely agree. It really did. I think there is one thing we should mention, though, before we really dig into it, Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm sure this is a question we are going to get, um, and I I just think it would be fair if we didn't bring this up out in the open. We watched this, as we mentioned, Mm -hmm. on HBO Max, Mm -hmm. which is the dubbed version of the movie. So so this, but I will say, this is a dubbed version, but I know that there's a huge thing where there is an American version of this film, but there's aspects that people say about the American version where, like, the American version doesn't mention Frankenstein at all, which this one does. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm a little unclear, but the research and everything I've been kind of doing seems like we kind of... We, we still watched a fairly faithful yeah. version of the film. I would say a couple things to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Number one, I think the most distinct thing that I could point out for this movie that is like noticeable is something we've talked about a lot with these early American dubs is that you definitely can tell that there's some soundtrack editing. Um, oh, yeah. With the movie um, that they use, you know, that one of they basically use one of Ife Kube's other themes mm-hmm. like basically throughout the entire movie. Like kind of one of the offshoot military march themes. The other thing I wanted to say about this is I, I would agree that generally speaking, I think these kind of American co-productions seem to generally have the most distinct, you know, faithful adaptation. At least the one we watched seemed to really be kind of like, well, I could just imagine this in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I wanted to say is I actually think in terms of what we're doing on this podcast that it was kind of important to take a look at like a, a dub version again because, yes, in our ideal world, we would always watch the subtitled Japanese version. Okay. And I also think two things. I think, one, you and I are smart enough people to like we can watch this and still appreciate and still know its flaws. But I also think it is important for us to watch something like this because the only other thing we've seen close to this type of thing is King Kong versus Godzilla. 
And to really look at it as like, this is what, generally speaking, an American audience would see. That's fair. And I, I that's think, a good point. I, I, I because we didn't talk, even think about that. We did. We talk about this all the time. Obviously, like King Kong versus Godzilla, we talk about it most distinctly because for a long time, that's like the only version of the film that's really available. But we talk about it in terms of how, you know, the the American release of Megalon really shaped the view of Godzilla for a lot of people. We talked about how that early attempt into, you know, making these American versions of the Hasty era films like didn't really hit, you know. Uh, and sort of, again, we talked about it with Godzilla 2000. Mm. We've always talked about it, but it is kind of a nice reminder to take a look at something like this, especially in this kind of Showa era, where, you know, these are the types of movies that people would put on, you know, these dubs would be put on Mystery Science Theater and stuff like that. I think it is important to reflect and take a look at this type of version and just kind of remember that this is how people would perceive these movies, and most likely a lot of the people that we talked about who like this movie... Would this is how they would have seen it. They you know, and I'm sure like a Tarantino would have probably sought out the original Japanese release, like you know, later yeah. in his life. But like when you're talking about Brad Pitt's being like the first movie he sees, or Nick Cage really liking this movie, most likely they saw this dubbed version first, and mm. that's what made them fall in love with the movie either way. And I think that it's a testament to the movie, and I think the production of that American release. I still think what's good about the movie, and it's kind of in a way, subtle thematics, I think, still really come across even in this dub version. That's very well put. I, I, I didn't even think about that, and I, I think that's a that's an excellent point. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, the the film, in a weird way, like I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, and even, I think, more so than the other show of films that we've watched like later on. Like I, I enjoyed this even a little bit more so than Mothra and Rodan. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, I found that very interesting. It, this was such a, this was such a, this, this film was such a treat. Um, and so the biggest thing there, there was a couple things that really stood out to me. One is just the, obviously the the special effects work um mm-hmm. at work in this one um especially now that i'm thinking about it really makes me want to go back and maybe catch uh you know um, um frankenstein conquers the world um but the 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 special effects work in this one is, is top notch and the directing of, of such is um but the other thing that struck me too was that it's a fairly well plotted and like thought out movie yeah. um like obviously there there's some um there there are some points that I can be a little bit more critical of, but I was actually quite impressed by, um, you know, it wasn't just kind of like, like especially when you talk about like the later, especially the later Showa era Godzilla films, where it really is just like, you know, they have an outline of some plot points and then really it's just a conduit to do like silly monster things. Like this reminded me of like kind of like a, like a good thought out sci-fi film mm-hmm. and not only down to the plotting, but there was also even thought put into like the mechanics of the film and um, and one of the biggest things storytelling wise that I was very impressed by was the navigation of tropes in this film mm-hmm. um, that there was a lot of the bad tropes that I think that they avoided while also keeping a lot of the tropes in a monster movie uh, such as this so like for instance the to kind of like get that point out of the way um, there were very there were a lot of very easy ways this film could have gone um, that they could have done the whole thing where you know the the you know there could have been this whole conflict of 
is the military going to like just bomb everything and be like the evil bad guy and everything? Well, no, th- this time around, they kind of make the military characters uh, be uh, smart people. Like they, they make them be a little bit more thorough and careful. Like I, I, they, I did kind of find and really that, discussing all the options. Right. I, I really did find it funny in a movie where we always talk about like, ah, the nuclear weapons, like that there was a level of like, well, we like the military people said like, well, man, we were going to bomb them, but clearly that's not a good idea. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. And then little things like, you know, you get to the end of the film where, you know, you have a good monster and a bad monster. And then it's always the conflict of like, no, they both need to be destroyed. And then I just thought it was funny that the scientists like, no, like the green one is the bad one. And like the tan one is or the brown one yeah. is like actually the good one. And then they're like, OK, good. All right. So we'll keep that in mind. So I, I just thought it was funny that like the, the, the there were a lot of those easy genre tra- trappings of that this movie could have easily fallen into um that they narrowly avoided while also keeping some of the fun tropes as well yeah and i i think too what really grabbed me about especially like the second half of the film which i think is very strong um is the emotion of the movie and i think that the 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 way that they present the relationship between our two monsters the way that they present the relationship between the human cast and the monsters themselves I really thought was it was effective to me, and I think um, I think I want to talk a little bit more about the plot mm-hmm. further before I get into that. But I really thought that that stuff really drove in again these kind of almost subtle themes and ideas that, uh, and again, I can't say for sure that you know maybe it's like more apparent in Japanese. I I can't say for certain. But I do think that even what what we saw, these themes were kind of put across very well, and it definitely kind of kept my brain moving, even a little bit after the movie. Yeah, so the general plot of the movie is that, you know, there's this uh, swamp, just a giant ocean Sasquatch creature, Gyra. Right, like we open up the movie on this big boat in the sea, and it's getting attacked by an octopus creature. And then this other giant, again, the green sassy, 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 uh, this sassy creature just coming around, snapping its fingers. Green giant mossy monster, you can Sasquatch monster Mm -hmm. attacks the, um, the octopus and then also attacks like the boat essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, again, this big kind of, and again, it's kind of like that kind of opening of the Showa era movie. It's like so. It's just like okay. Yeah, it gets big, right into it too. Because no, not knowing is like oh, it's like it's a giant octopus like the Frankenstein, or like or does it have to do with the Frankenstein? Or is that our villain? And then no, it's like guy. So it's funny. Gyra just kind of like throws it away. The giant octopus uh, was actually from a. Uh, never used alternate ending to Frankenstein conquers the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was like a, a funny little thing. So, yeah, so the plot is like that this, you know, this creature shows up and, you know, there are these um, scientists who one of the things about this film is that it is considered a quote unquote sequel right. to Frankenstein Conquers the World. But even Honda and the makers of this film have kind of open, like said it. it's more of a spiritual sequel. Like they, they've acknowledged that like, yeah, the timeline between it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It just kind of vaguely uses the events and the plot elements of right. the previous film to justify this one. They didn't worry. It, this was the Showa era. They didn't worry about stuff like that. It's like, like the Bond thing where it's like, yeah, yeah some of the sad stuff happened earlier, yeah. in the, but it's like, this is kind of its own thing too. So like the idea is that the scientists, you know, the government thinks like, oh, it's this Frankenstein monster that, from the previous film. Right, which in continuity like died 
yeah. seemingly died two years previously on Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, the scientists are pretty convinced that it is not, uh, you know, this is not a Frankenstein comeback, but, you know, they have to deal with this monster. And uh, basically, the idea, just kind of to get this plot element out of the way, is that they find out that um, that this creature basically is made and has grown from the leftover DNA of that Frankenstein It literally, creature. like, essentially evolved from a single cell. Right. Like the whole theory that they eventually come up with is that whatever happened to the original Frankenstein monster uh, at one point he was in like a pond and he got like something scraped off Mm -hmm. like a part of his like fur or skin got scraped off it went to the ocean it essentially like this single cell or a single part of him fed off of plankton until it eventually grew Mm -hmm. and like regenerated into right. its its own version of a Frankenstein monster. And then similar with our second Gargantua, Sanda, um, who is implied that a similar thing happened, but, like, that was cells that were left, like, in the mountains or somewhere. Yeah. So, like, it kind of grew up to be kind of, like, this more Earth-based um, Frankenstein creature. Yeah, or, or like... Very it, Shin Godzilla-esque. And, and there's kind of, like, a thing where, like, does it have the memory of it's like relationship with you know the scientists right like right there's kind of a whole thing with with that whereas like i kind of more imply that it, it's kind of a little bit more has a little bit more memory right because one of the things i really read into the movie and again this kind of goes into the thematics is almost like it's like a nature versus nurture type of relationship i feel like that's where, definitely part yeah that, where, I where it's mean, like you know like there. the the gyro one was like out in the open sea and had the kind of fight to survive and that's why it's much more aggressive uh, and like has no qualms about eating whatever comes its way, mm-hmm. whereas like the the original uh, monster definitely still has some some sort of connection still with the humanity, and they're still kind of like we get this flashback of like the original Frankenstein like, growing up, and it's like you know he's very much like kind of a fun little kid who's like oh like he's playing with a thing, and it's like oh it's time for your food, and it's like I think there's definitely an element of like. Again, the nature versus nurture that's kind of subtly hidden in the movie. Yeah, definitely. I I I think that's in there as well. So, um, so that's essentially the plot of the movie, and then it just be kind of becomes this right. following these two creatures, right? Where it's like we kind of got these plot lines of we got like kind of the three. We got what's going on with with uh, Gyra mm-hmm. and kind of his appearances to humanity. We got the military trying to respond. And then we got the three scientists that grew the original Frankenstein that created it, uh, trying to figure out what this is. Is it is it their original monster? Is it something else? Can you know? Because they're all like, "Well, no, our, our original monster would never do what this thing right. does. It would never attack people because we trained it that way." And and it's funny because it's very distinctive from the Godzilla films because very rarely did the Godzilla films ever segment up their plots this way. Mm-hmm. Like even if it were like. Sometimes, like let's say, if you had Terror of Mecha, not Terror of Mecha Godzilla, uh, Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, you may have the scene where like Godzilla gets a scene by himself where he like is going out to the stormy seas and he's powering himself out, powering himself up after a defeat. Um, like this film dedicates like some character time to the monsters, absolutely, um, in a way that was really showing like Honda like you know really showcasing his um his love for portraying monsters in that way yeah. um and it, and it almost makes kind of like a nice um you know and you can see him kind of like playing with that idea a little bit in 
in a more whimsical way in like in uh, Ghidorah Three-Headed Monster where you know he finally starts giving the monster some personality um the, here it comes into a dare I say a more thoughtful adult way where that you know they're kind they um they portray the monsters so first first things first like we can talk about the the, the monsters one by one you have Gyra who's like this giant swamp monster we talked about um overall just like you know really effective stuff going on with really with this monster. it's interesting because it's definitely they definitely again as you said they're very thought out in like its elements you know especially because like early on in the movie it's kind of afraid of light because it's used to being in like the ocean depths coming out at night uh so there's that element of the creature and the other thing is it's a very aggressive has no qualms about eating people monster it's mm-hmm. it's literally it's true well that was the biggest thing like it's when, truly when it like ate somebody mon- when yeah. it, it yeah because there's this whole uh like his big kind of real big scene because he has that opening sequence and then his whole really truly big kind of like oh man it's a monster moment is this airport sequence and he's essentially just kind of like trudging through this airport, just like kick, you know, kicking mm-hmm. down buildings in that classic. And while the suit performance is great all around, it is funny because it still has that classic Toho giant monster movie goofiness to him. Like it, it's just always kind of like slightly off, like you know, like the way he runs. Yeah, it, like it, it's he, fun. It, there's definitely like he like runs like kind of with both arms, and it's just kind of. But it's, it's funny because again, with without these humanoid monsters, we've really never truly got like it's a monster sprinting. Because even Godzilla, when he like you know drives into another monster, there's a very you know bottom heavy feel to Godzilla, you know, and, and the way that that suit is made. Whereas when you have our, our both of our gargantuas, but especially in this early scene of, of Gyra, where he's just kind of full on sprinting like, mm-hmm. across the runway to like get away from everybody, hopping into like the the, the ocean and right. everything, and yeah, and, but, and but then overall, I gotta say the special effects work in this movie very effective. Like generally the, speaking, yeah, the, it, the, it was fun to see some of the old like real true like Toho like like the kind of toy cars and stuff mm-hmm. like that but him in, swimming in the ocean i thought was a lot of fun oh yeah and, yeah this the ocean stuff was really good and the way like they shot like the him coming in and coming out of the ocean um was very effective that in this movie. i thought was great because those shots usually are terrible yeah in these films yeah i know it looked really good like especially like remember remember those shots in like in like Godzilla 2000 and that's all the way in 1999 and it's like you those shots of like him like walking up in the horizon and mm-hmm. like the ocean awful yeah terrible no, it looked pretty, and they look great in this it one pretty good in this movie but i was just going back to the the yeah so at one point like he's destroying all this airport stuff and you kind of cut into the buildings people are trying to escape he literally like reaches in to like this woman who's like holding flowers and then like she he literally like just straight up like eats her mm-hmm. and then spits the flowers out right and it is kind of like an oh like especially having watched all of these and especially kind of knowing that like yeah, like definitely there were kind of Showa era. There was kind of some kind of crazy stuff in these Godzilla movies, but they were, you know, we generally got to a point where they were kind of family friendly in a sense where it's like, yes, things would get destroyed, but it usually was kind of like, you know, the the collateral damage. You very rarely really well, saw we, like uh, a direct like this 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 kind of well it's funny because you we talk about it like remember one of the biggest rules like later on down the line when they're making the 98 film is like one of the toho rules was that godzilla doesn't eat people right so it it, it was just funny and you know and, and and it's a really good effective shorthand for you know um 
you know, taking this monster seriously. Yeah. Because other than sometimes maybe you have, like, let's say, like, the Mega Nulon and Rodan attacking them. That, that's a little bit of, like, creature feature-esque. Yes. But usually, you're right. You just have the monsters just destroying cities, and then people, that's the destruction. And people running away. Yeah. It's like, we still get that, but it's like, there is a very distinctive, like... There's a certain... Whoa, like, there's a whoa moment when, like, he literally just puts him puts her in his mouth. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a certain amount of, like, like intimacy to that evil that is effective like yeah. you like once like it's one thing if he's like just crushing buildings but if he's literally like picking people out of buildings and then just eating them that then, then it's it, it's the the stakes have never and been honestly higher. a part of it too is just the familiarity with something like that with king kong because like when king kong takes a woman it's like oh he kind of falls in love with the woman type of thing so it's like yeah, you're right. It's, so it's kind of playing with that visual language it, a little yeah, bit, it's, too. Yeah, it's just like, because it, it happens again later with The Singer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which, again, is also very distinctly like, this movie was made partially for American audiences because we have an American singer mm-hmm. in a Japanese setting. Because it's one of the things where, at one point, you could be like, oh, they probably shot this like American singer differently for like this American cut. And then, like, oh, like maybe in the Japanese versus Japanese. But I like, know they very distinctly like pan out. Uh, and it's like on the same stage as like all these, you know, the Japanese audience of this night, like this roof nightclub, mm-hmm. um, which was like very cool. And it was also very like because they the whole thing, again, is the monsters afraid of life, but they kind of dim the lights of the of the of the rooftop bar mm-hmm. to like for ambient effect of the song. And then, like at the end of the song, you just see kind of Gyra kind of like slowly like make his way into kind of right, like, right. like peak his way in the frame. Though we did never, he doesn't get to eat the singer, but the singer gets dropped. Mm-hmm. We never really find out what happens to her. I hope she's okay. Um, yeah, her I, song was fine. You you mentioned the whole thing with like the lights being turned off, and that kind of leads into an like an aspect of the film I already mentioned about how you know thoroughly the film is, is thought out, and and it's one of those things like because I always hate to say like oh a movie is smart, but there were definitely like a lot of like just thorough smart like decisions and like things that were put into like the script and the storytelling and the dialogue, you know kind of one of those things where you know a movie that covers its bases a lot like mm-hmm. you know I don't mind if a movie takes artistic license it doesn't have to explain every single thing but a movie that does and does it comprehensively. Um, you know, gets a you know gets a lot of credit. So, like, this was one of those movies where the film very effectively and efficiently explains all the mechanics of the fiction pretty well, and uh, engages in that in a very um, practical, efficient way. So, for instance, what I mean by that is that they find out fairly early on in the film that Gyra is, um, you know, not only like you know a creature of the sea, but is also uh, weak against light. Like if you shine bright light at it, then it gets it freaks out and it runs right. Because again, it's like used to the ocean depths or coming out at night. Like mm-hmm. the whole thing is like it's not used to light and light kind of scares it. Because the whole thing about the airport sequence is that it's kind of a cloudy kind of day, and like what makes him run back into the ocean is like the sun starts coming out and mm-hmm. starts freaking him out. So they're like, okay, light. So again, when he's doing this thing on the city and he he sneaks up on this nightclub, there's an immediate like radio call. It's like, okay, everybody turn on your lights. The right, monster, yeah, exactly. The, the monster's here. The monster seems to be afraid of lights. So everybody, and, and it goes, and I, I like this dub too, because it's like, you know, 
everybody who's listening, please, con- you know, businesses be prepared to turn on your advertisement lights and stuff. Like right. That. Yeah. Like, I mean, a, it was a very thorough. Element it was. It, it's a really subtle thing that really helps you engage in the world a, a little yeah. bit more, which is what I like about it. Um, one of the other things I did like in the movie that was very thorough is, and so you know, maybe that transitions into the human drama a little bit. Um, as we said before, there's this uh, the government kind of. Um, you know, there there is this fun little. Uh, they find the uh, guy who survived the boat. Um, you know, uh, destruction at the beginning of the movie yeah. when uh, Gyra was fighting the octopus. Which, by the way, before I move on from that, that octopus special effect was pretty good. Like yeah. with the tentacles coming. It in. It reminded me a lot of the great uh, giant squid sequence right. in Twenty Thousand. I was going to say that we got to face those two off. We got to face that giant octopus and the giant squid off. I don't know. I, I honestly, if like a weird little like side kaiju thing because it's not a full kaiju movie but i would like to dig into Twenty Thousand leagues and talk about like kind of the giant monster stuff in that movie yeah i mean it, it made me think about that because yeah. that that was just but I, it, it was very impressive work i, I yeah. was very like like mm-hmm. uh thrown especially by for how this again this era of, uh, this era of toho stuff yeah it really feels like there's there's a real precision to it um so you know so they find they so they find these scientists so they have this like scene where you know they're interrogating the the guy who survived the boat accident and you know, he does the whole, which is funny because it, it's always funny going back and seeing these movies and you see these little parallels between like movies that have yet to come. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like I said, like, oh, like the shedding of the Frankenstein thing uh, grew into other monsters. That is kind of a very Shin Godzilla idea. Um, another little thing is like the guy in the boat just being like, oh, monster. Reminds me a lot of the uh, Gojira scene in uh, Godzilla 1998, mm-hmm. which, I, which I think is funny. Um, so eventually that leads the government into finding the scientists who have uh, a history and knowledge of the Frankenstein monster. And uh, they're saying like, oh, no, it's like, um, you know, the, there's no way it could be Frankenstein. It could be could be another monster. But definitely not a Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's like they have all the reporters come in. As it's like, again, they just go over like, yeah, our Frankenstein died two years ago. And mm-hmm. we, we kind of know that. And again, like we, we raised our Frankenstein to not hurt humanity. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, you know, and we have like the female scientists. Like I worked with him directly many times, even when he grew. Like he knows humans and he wouldn't do that. And, you know, I, I don't want to say these main characters are anything impressive, but I kind of maybe it's just because of the story being told. I ended up kind of like, like, you know, being on board. I, no, with, I, with I enjoy guys. Like here's I, I will say this. First of all, um, the, the Dr. Stewart. Yeah. Russ. Russ Tamblin. It was weird because he's also definitely dubbed over himself right. in this movie. Like it's because with Nick Adams, what was we learned is like the American version just he spoke English and then he was dubbed in Japanese. But right. this one is like with with this dub, he was very distinctly like dubbed over. Right. But his here's the thing. There is an element of like his performance being slightly disinterested. Like there's kind of a, Oh, he, he definitely has that Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye thing going on where him being disinterested actually helps the character. Yes. I agree a hundred percent. Like there's this kind of just chill kind of weirdly calm. He, he's always kind of like considering like the possibility, and, right? And just the way that it kind of all comes together. I kind of really just dug like this type of character. It was kind of weird. You know what also helps the movie too is that the movie doesn't quite try to make it like oh like it's like a huge calamity that there's a monster like you know it, it, it's 
you know, the stakes are high, but I, well, I did say the stakes have never been higher. The stakes have always never been higher, but you know, like there's a sense that I feel like sometimes with like these monster movies, they try to make it seem like this is like the biggest deal. Like, you know, this is like the end of everything. Like, you know, our cities are going to like burn to the ground. And you know, this is kind of like, even though it's a giant monster that is like the size of like buildings, they, they kind of play it a little bit more, um, a little bit more conservatively, yeah. I, I thought, and I and I think that kind of helped with the tone of the movie, and that kind of helped with this more relaxed nature of like the lead characters. And I also, I mean, I think it also has to do with just the fact that I think another easy kind of trope they would have been with is like them kind of pleading to be like, no, that isn't that isn't the monster we cared for, right? And right. I, I think like even with the the female scientist who is the most engaged with it there's there's generally like they're like that isn't our monster we know that isn't our monster right. we'll have to find some proof but like it's not our monster and i think that kind of helps too because i think that there's there's a very easy like you could go over the top melodrama with it and i think the fact that they're very calculated about it kind of makes it more interesting in a sense where it's like there there are scientists and they are trying to figure out well what is this thing as opposed to being like, and then the emotional attachment stuff comes really later mm-hmm. when we get our when we get the other half of our Frankenstein brothers. Right. So so all so all that stuff really worked. And one of the plot lines I was going to mention was is that you know eventually Gyra makes his big attack, and then you know then they finally everybody admits that they have a monster crisis on their hand, and they're you know all the government and the press and everybody are there talking to the scientists. And this is when I knew like oh this movie's playing for keeps is because you know they talk about it, and then they're like so wait would you acknowledge that if you just followed up on the monster thing right away that we could have saved some lives? And I was like, whoa, this movie's playing for keeps. Like, it was just interesting. Like, that was just kind of like a little, like, a little beat in the movie mm-hmm. that I think that you necessarily wouldn't have had, like, in a lot of other Godzilla movies. Around this say. time especially. Yeah, yes. and it, it was just interesting. Again, those these just little moments that I think really paint a, a bigger, more detailed picture um, that was it was just very nice to see, and, and and that was like one of those moments I thought that was really nice. Um, and then you know, and then around this point is when they do the whole like we're gonna catch the monster thing, and, yeah. and this would probably be arguably probably my only really critique of the movie is like th- this is the part of the movie that lulls a little bit. It takes a little bit long. They they like follow him in in the they follow Gyra into like the mountains and the forest and they're trying to, you know, corner him and they're mazering him and you know they're so, yeah. they're like, you know, sending helicopters after him. Great performance stuff. You know, it's fun to see the toy tanks and the toy helicopters. The the, the- Gyra throwing the tanks into the buildings mm-hmm. was great. Yeah. Like it's one of those fun things where it's like just seeing these giant toy tanks go into these giant toy buildings are it was just like fabulous. Right. Um so all that stuff so to, on a technical aspect that was good. You know, it, it was the bit in the in the movie that kind of It just takes a little down. bit long. Yeah, yeah it just ta- it could have been like just streamlined, especially because again with this dub that we have the same song plays throughout it too. Mm-hmm. Um, the very distinct, again, like kind of one of the military themes of Ifakube just kind of plays throughout. Uh, but one, it is eventually. So the whole one of the whole things is like you know, and there's kind of whole things where it's like they have this plan, but the monster's coming early, so it's like they kind of have to hurry things up. Mm-hmm. And, but eventually, they're like succeeding essentially. That they're they're just kind of overwhelming this monster. 
And it was kind of funny because you could definitely tell that the suit was like on fire at one point. Right, like this, right. Like they were just bombing it and mazering it. And it's essentially like their plan is we're just going to overwhelm this thing until it can't survive. So it's just like getting pounded and pounded. And Guy was obviously strong, so he's like fighting through it. But then you start to see like his, his body is getting torn apart. Like there's like scars and like, and, and like wounds everywhere. And he's like literally dying or seemingly like this is it. And then our other original Frankenstein monster, Sanda, just... Sanda pops in. And and to be fair, this is one of those, it, it is right at that point in the movie where you are questioning to yourself, isn't this movie called war of the gargantuas? So it, it almost like, you know, it, it almost comes to the edge of testing your patience, but then eventually the, but what, what Sanda does is he essentially protects Gyra. Mm-hmm. He he basically like kind of waves away, like stops everything, you know, from from hitting him, stops the maser cannons and the bombs and stuff. Kind of like is like, what are you doing? Like right. stop, you're killing him. And then he like looks back at them like disappointed. Like he just has this like like you you like you people, you don't understand. I mean, and, and this is where I think we should just say the storytelling through the suit performances is some of the best I think we've I ever seen. I absolutely love this because yeah. there's a couple reasons. When you're talking about the tropes, the easy trope to do in like a war of the Gargantua movie is like, oh, like this, you know, the one monsters, you know, again, what we've seen in all these Godzilla movies, the one monster is like devastating the city and kicking everybody's butt. And then all of a sudden the Godzilla or the hero monster like comes out and like starts punching him too. And it's like, look, it's our hero monster. But the fact that they start off our hero monster, the Sanda story, with him protecting his his fellow Frankenstein, you know, and possibly to his knowledge, like the only other thing of his race or his kind he's ever seen, is extremely immediately powerful and immediately interesting and different. And I was like, I think when I have that happens, like, oh my god, this movie is great. This movie is it, really it, and good. it's also impressive because you know there is that little bit where I'm like, man, Sanda kind of shows up out of nowhere very late in this movie. But they they put a lot in that in the in the rest of the film, which is maybe like a little over like a half hour left of the film at that point. Yeah. And it's very impressive how much of a story that they're able to tell between those two. Hey, you hey. know, it, it, with. No, because they don't even do the 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 uh, uh, Ghidorah three headed monster thing where there's nobody you know filling in the gaps for the audience. It's it's purely just the visual storytelling of what's there up on screen. And I think it's, the film does a good enough job of just kind of planting the idea of of Santa throughout the movie. You know, like when they're kind of again the questions of like this can't be our monster, but like you know did our other monster really die? And then, you know, when they're marching up, like, Paramount Logo Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and they're kind of like, well, this, you know, there were reports of this other monster here, but now it's gone. There's, it's just kind of like they do enough to kind of be like, okay, maybe something else will happen, and then this kind of comes up. But it's just immediately, like, again, it's just, Santa protecting Gyra is just so immediately interesting, and it's just unexpected, and it immediately, like, grabs you into the movie. because mm-hmm. and, and again, like we said, the suit performances really showcase how how disappointed and angry Sandra looks uh, when he's kind of bringing this brutalized and beaten up Gyra like for protection. He like looks back a couple times and you can just tell that it's just like, no, like this is my brother. Like, why are you doing this? It's great. And so, and then that basically, you know, that moves forward into like, you know, 
Sanda is officially, you know, caring for this creature, and then he like leaves him at this like one corner of the mountain. But then, you know, shit hits the fan when uh, Sanda returns, and then he basically discovers that Gyra has been eating people. Right. He sees like these discarded clothes, and he immediately knows, like, oh, yeah. like you know, which, which again is like something like because at this point. Santa really hasn't been in the movie this much. So the fact, and in, just in this one scene, it's so beautifully and effectively and so efficiently just really just tells you an entire picture. The fact that he right. sees those and he does the Arthur meme closed fist. And then he like, you know, once again, another, you know, pickup from another kaiju movie down the line is uh, Skull Island. You know, he is going to pick up the uh, tree and use it as a battering ram. And then that's what instigates the fight. And I'll just, I, with a, you know, I have no other words other than to say it's just beautifully done. Yeah. And I think it's also because, like, right before that, again, you still have a really distinction with the other, you know, with, with what's going on. Because mm-hmm. they're all looking for them. You know, like, they're chased, you know, you know, our scientists are kind of, like, walking through, kind of trying to look because both monsters have disappeared. And, again, there's this, like, well, well, Gyra has to be in the, the lake because he's a water-based creature. Right. And it's, like, you know, Sanders probably out there somewhere. Could be the whole thing where it's like they're being chased from the monster, and then you know the the female scientist like falls off a cliff, but then he's saved by she's saved by Sanda too. So you already get that like there's so much of just even in this these two little moments of him initially protecting Gyra, caring for Gyra, and then saving the female scientist. It's an immediate just like she she to the audience of like okay, well this creature cares mm-hmm. and he has like emotion and he has a heart mm-hmm. and so immediately when he comes back and he sees the discarded clothes and again just the zoom in on like the face and then he immediately like oh like he's immediately like just angry and boiling with with anger at his brother and again we again we get the beginning of their kind of tiff with each other yeah and and then it and then it also starts like the first time that they're fighting and you know and one of the interesting things i'd have to like go back and study the movie i don't think this movie really plays with like the visual language of the fighting all that much like because you know there's the famous where you know they they shot uh ray uh godzilla raids again at the wrong shutter speed and then it just made like the monsters like looking like very fast and ferocious like moving like obviously to us if you know shutter speeds and stuff it looks kind of goofy but the chaotic hectic nature of it is kind of like what makes it fun and that's something that you see in a couple other godzilla movies um or sometimes they would like slow you know the the film down for stunts uh my knowledge if i if i'm remembering the visual language correctly is that most of the stuff if not all was in real time no it was it, it felt in and it really felt like it, it was using the strengths of having two like essentially dude type monsters yeah. like fight each other and just really feel visceral there's an element of just again it's kind of the the movement of the suits and the the humanoid nature just kind of brings it to it feels like like a, a family hating each other brawl where mm-hmm. it's just like it's not totally clean there's definitely like emotion driving it and you know it's just like tackling and punching and stuff like that it's, mm-hmm. there's flipping def- over each other yeah, and there's, like yeah there's definitely that kind of like again Sanders like angry emotion and then Gyra just defending himself mm-hmm. but also again Gyra's 
inherent aggressive nature from his you know yeah. his time at sea like and, and, i think and, there's that element of it and the film sticks to this they they stick to the characters because once again you think like well now that they're just going to be enemies and the rest of it's going to be fighting but they maintain and thoroughly explore this relationship of sanda constantly as we even as we go in the third act is always trying not to fight He's trying to like be the bigger monster and like he's all in invisibly being like essentially saying like like let's not fight let's not do this and then Gyra is like clearly conflicted but at the end of the day is just like a ravenous monster and will right. just throw the first punch and then that's what you know and then things escalate from there and, and the film just very effectively shows this without any dialogue and entirely through the super performances right because again because what ends up happening is that you know Gyra ends up escaping makes his way back to the city and now there's this whole thing of like well now he you know he's used to light because even like Santa has kept him in light for so long Mm-hmm. that he kind of associates like light with food now and he light light with safety now so like they again they do the whole thing like turn your lights on no turn them turn them off turn them off and then you know again like iris dropping through the city and eventually sander comes up and again there's this whole kind of like don't want to do it brother and he's like you know sander's like shaking his head and, and there's kind of like again like iris kind yeah, of he's kind of like, like he's like it's too late i gotta do it yeah, and, i'm and, a monster <laughs> Like and and Gyra's kind of there's an element of like yeah maybe Gyra's a little bit conflicted but there's a little bit of egging on by Gyra mm-hmm. where it's like you know it's like Santa's like shaking his like no like I stop I don't want to do this and Gyra's like no we we got it like come on like I need, and, I need to beat you and also major props to the just the set work and like the visual effects work in the third act because there's a lot of like throwing them into buildings and like you know stepping on cars and stuff and. Right. And it's a very civil war. Like, don't make me do this. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, but well, I was just talking about just like specific, specifically the effects. Of oh yes, yeah, like yeah. the like. I just thought like it, it was all just very well done and very well choreographed. Um, you know, again, I guess with the Godzilla films, you're just so used to just repeated footage and stock footage that yeah. this one just felt like a full, uh, like a full picture. Um, so you know, so so that was all really impressive. Um, to see and then we have our human characters um, who you know are trying to do the right thing and trying to advocate for Sanda who you know they have seen as like the good monster and to reach out to them but then they're kind of forced into this position where they just have to kind of wait out the fight yeah because um, the argument you know and then the argument I thought and I thought this was actually a fairly smart thing of the movie to pull out too is this whole argument of you know they're just going to blow him up mm-hmm. and then the whole thing is like well if Gyra evolved from one cell of Sanda, then what Frankenstein. Would, Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If 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 one Frankenstein evolved from another Frankenstein, then what's to stop more Frankenstein's from evolving? If you don't like, you right? Know, you're basically you, gonna essentially they're like you're gonna blow it up, and then there's gonna be like Gyra chunks everywhere, and then right. you're gonna have a bunch and, of Gyras. And, and it's like you know their whole advocate is like, well, Franken chunks. Right. It's like, well, you know, we gotta defeat. Gyra, but the other one's a good monster, and we can still study him and see like the re, re, regenerative properties of him in, in study and trying to kind of find an excuse to specifically save the other monster. Mm. Um, well, and then again, our, our main two scientists, uh, Russ Tamblin and, and his female companion, uh, are also trying to do their own machinations to, to save Santa mm-hmm. uh, himself. And then they also, they basically come up, again, once once again, the, the thorough nature of the film, they say, like, well, then maybe we'll just napalm it because then it will just burn, yeah. like, the whole thing, and then there won't be anything left. Um, so then, ultimately, and then this fight leads them both out to sea where they fight 
and then the government or the military has no other recourse other than like well we have to um do our plan and start napalming them or bombing them or whatever and uh this action leads to uh like um activating a volcano in the middle of the ocean yeah um and uh which uh destroys um both gyra and sanda or does it probably but maybe not it's the end of the movie like so i think my thing about the ending is it was interesting because it's a very somewhat similar ending to Rodan um, in the sense of like, okay, it's a giant volcano and it just burns the two monsters alive is like the humans kind of look on as like, oh, is it over type of thing. But what I really kind of took in and this, this is one of those things where it may be me reading into the movie a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. I will admit that fully, but I, what re- else do we do other than read into, but I really thought much. this was effective for this movie because of the relationship that they presented between the two brothers. It presents it as a tragedy of of both of them mm-hmm. because I kind of took it's like the war of the gargantuas is like the title of the movie and I kind of took it to be like you know the, the, this whole thing that we talk about like the, the the atomic bombs and world war ii and stuff is constantly a thing of these movies and there is a kind of a sense of like it's a war with no winner and there can't be a winner because it's brother against brother it's you know and it's it's a tragedy too because sanda had tried everything in his power to prevent this. Mm-hmm. He almost was like, I don't want to do this because I know this is not going to have a good ending. You're my brother. We should protect each other. And it really is kind of like the war has no winner because, you know, Santa has just kind of gotten into this 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 emotionally driven fight without really thinking of itself now. And it's like, again, like by the time they get out to sea, it's just like, there is no more I'm trying to stop this. It right. is just like they're wailing on each other. And I kind of felt it kind of relates to a lot of the World War II reflection that like Honda has and kind of the general war reflection that sometimes appears in these movies. It's like there's a sense that like war is not good because even if there is a winner, there's no winner. Even though even the humans won, but there is still questions of the future. You know, it's like the war may be over, but there is still a chance that the same thing happens again, that the monsters still regenerate to their own selves. I like that. I mean, and it's a good point. And and I think it's supported by the fact that the film doesn't quite fall into those tropes of like, you know, that they're uber aggressive about destroying, like the military is not uber aggressive about destroying whatever they need to. Like everything just kind of seems like very understandable. Like they have to, they have to, beat this monster somehow and they portray those characters as very understanding um and you just get this sense by the end of the movie that there really is no other recourse and you're allowed to think that a little bit because if the monster who is essentially your good guy and that everybody else in the movie has agreed as the good guy has kind of also embraced that okay we i just have to like fight this thing to to the death so you kind of start accepting that ending now funny thing is that that i think that you'll want to take in consideration is that i think originally the uh, original ending of the film as written was that the volcano erupted and then not only destroyed sanda and gyra but also um and and also successfully destroyed like any remnant of them but also destroyed uh, part of that town in a in part of that city as well um so it was like a lot of collateral damage um as well so kind of leading to that point where there really are no no winners, no winners. that's actually interesting um because that would have been a really kind of neat little 
pinpoint of the movie too. Mm-hmm. Just like even this the city that's already been destroyed is just getting more destroyed by the results of this war of the Gargantuas. I right. think that would been that would have been a fairly interesting ending. The 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 biggest thing I did want to say as I kind of thought about this film was you know especially in relation to the Godzilla films was that I was just really surprised by how thorough and complete of 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 a picture that this film was and how mature it was in certain elements like you know just the whole sanda guy relationship and how that was portrayed in the film it's interesting like i and you know i loved all the the showa godzilla films but when you look at those films like kind of what have we you know kind of you know uh um admitted to them about them that they're also very uh fast produced I mean, this technically was, which makes it even more impressive. But, you know, they're churned out very fast. Like, you know, they're going to stop making them, and then they're going to come back in and cash in on the Godzilla name, and they're going to come. It's like, oh, just when you think they're out, they're coming back in and things like that. But, you know, they're also in this period where they're constantly, like, reusing footage. And, you know, Honda even got to the point where, you know, even he was kind of, like, you know, getting burned out by the franchise by the end and was eager to see them, you know, any – Toho do anything interesting with the franchise going forward it almost kind of I got this sense that in very much of the way that Godzilla was the kid friendly you churn them out to have fun movie and this felt more in line with the mature Honda that we had seen in 1954 with yeah. the original Gojira and then all of the it, this just felt like the the more natural mature evolution of all the how we know that honda thinks about making these movies yes and i and it it was interesting and and for the first time it really put the godzilla franchise into context when it came to other kaiju films and i think it also really plays to honda's strengths and in terms of him growing even as a director up to that point because you know i think like we see 54 and it's still one of the best and it's still an unbelievably directed film but I think it's like when we take a look at his other stuff around the time, which is like, you know, Rodan and, and Mothra, we definitely have, have noted that while we do enjoy elements of those films, that there are kind of little things that kind of, you know, little glitches in those movies that right. kind of prevent them from being perfect. And I think that this movie, as a directorial effort, really kind of stands alongside, I think, Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster, in terms of, like, post-54, like, the best of that early-era show of film in terms of direction. Right. Because I think that Ghidra is similar in a way where, yes, it's kind of still, in, in that Godzilla style, so really big and crazy because it has, like, assassination plots and the Venetian princess and all that sort of stuff. But I still think that movie is similar in the sense that it does try to, again, inject the personalities into the monsters and tries to do something emotionally, even with, like, the Mothra larva trying to, you know, sacrifice itself and even the stuff with the assassination and the Venetian stuff. I think there's a lot of meat there, and I think it comes to fruition a lot here where you have kind of costumes, I think, that are really conducive to Honda's directorial style and the storytelling style that he has, a, a set of monster costumes that... Even if they're, you know, not as crazy as the other kaijus we've seen in terms of design, really get to showcase the type of emotion that he wants to show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he brings it all together in a very emotional package. And I think that it's just a testament to, like, even with 
kind of Honda doing kind of these later films and kind of, you know, later on kind of more going into like the monster brawl stuff Mm -hmm. that these other Godzilla films have been in. I think it's still a testament to how good of a director Honda is and how he can really bring the best of what Kaiju cinema can be to the forefront. Couldn't have said it better myself. I, I completely agree. Um, so I'll only follow that up with who is Harrison Ford in this movie. I can't really think of like a go-to for this one. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, hmm. Maybe he's like he's, the boyfriend slash manager agent of the singer that, who's yeah. almost eaten by Gyra. Yeah. Where he's like, we're gonna. It's like, yeah, baby, we're gonna make millions, and yeah. he's like, either kinda... that or like just the man. He could have been the manager of the club, and right. it's like now he right. has to do like damage control because like, oh, like we almost eaten, but it's like that girl survived. So like his new advertising campaign is like, come see the girl that was almost eaten by <laughs> the Frankenstein. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. Now I I have a question. Yes. Do you think? that you could have fit these Frankenstein monsters into the wider Toho canon. So, okay, so that's actually a good way to segue into a little bit of Aftermath because there's not that much, obviously. We talked about the legacy. But, yeah, I mean, Toho was very interested in, I mean, very much in the same way that you had seen other independent um, Toho creations such as, like, Varin. Um, like we said, even Baragon showed up. Um, the, despite these two uh, creatures getting uh, destroyed, Gyra and Sanda, that there was talk that the Gargantuas would appear somehow in the mainline Godzilla films. And simply put, it just never happened. It, ju- it just never came to fruition. The closest thing being the brief edited-in mention of Gyra in Godzilla Tokyo SOS. Yeah. That was really like the only thing. Now, obviously... The legacy of these films, if you include the Frankenstein uh, Conquers the World film, like, you know, with Baragon being in the film and the fact that the Mazers became like a mainstay in the in in the uh, in the franchise and the fact that Guyra even got a shout out at all shows that, you know, that the Gargantuas do have that spot within like you know to in the in the, in the Toho lore. Mm-hmm. But just it, it, it's just one of those things where you know, through really no other reason other than it just it hasn't happened. There's really yeah. no specific reason, but so that's the more practical. I think you were asking me, could I see yeah. uh, that happening? Um, sure. Why not? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that you, maybe you hear in like an upcoming thing. I think the gargantuas have been used in comics. Definitely. I think more in the modern day version, like fan projects and like, you know, in like individual publishing are way more willing to uh, incorporate the gargantuas with, uh, with Godzilla uh, lore, because there's no reason they're both Toho uh, productions. Yeah. So it's, there's no like barrier, you know, there's no weird like Ultraman or um, I mean, Ultraman also is kind of related, but you know, it's still kind of too removed. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I could, I could see it. Why not? Well, like, because I was thinking of this, like, you know, especially, like, in sort of the, if, like, in an alternate universe, like, if I could pitch, like, a Gargantuas in, like, the Hasty era or or in the, uh, or in the Millennium era, I think both of them could have worked. Like, I think, honestly, a good way to do it, you know, if we're going back to, like, our kaiju pitches type of idea, 
is almost have like a gargantuan as like a competing project to like a Mecha Godzilla. Mm. Like if that had been a follow up to like let's say you post Mecha Godzilla two instead of Space Godzilla, we got this movie where okay, we need something else to defeat Godzilla. Well, let's create our own monster. Let's create our own Frankenstein. And then you could have had like Miki kind of like the the monster goes out of control because it's like a you know it's like a creative monster and it doesn't know its purpose. And then Miki tries to calm it down or something. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, where uh, Tokyo SOS ended with all these kaiju DNA collections and stuff like that. Right, like, yeah. Within that, within the, you know, the the against Mechagodzilla Tokyo SOS canon where the bones of Godzilla have already been used, that would have been a really cool way to take it was, you know, okay, now they've tried to create their own monster and they create a, a gargantuan. I, I, yes, I like that idea. Another pitch I would make too is I could definitely see the gargantuas having a very much like el- like an elevated um love letter appearance to them like if you put them as like like I'm trying to think of like a a good example for it but like let's say they were in a Godzilla movie and they appear in like a pivotal role not as like major monsters but as kind of like I don't know like some like you know guardian type monsters or whatever like oh like you know these are like some like ancient monsters called the gargantuas i mean it's such a great name too yeah is the gargantuas but if you think of them like very much akin to like i don't know like the eagles in the lord of the rings movies like they kind of have that type of role where they like they like come in and or you know and even more so like the ents yeah like if they were kind of i could see them being used in like that type of capacity where they yeah. kind of have that more elevated love letter appearance. Um, I just, I definitely think there was potential in those other eras. The, the, the thing about them, though, is that while I did like them, they kind of have that thing where it's just simply put, when you look at the entire family yeah. of Toho Kaiju, they it's I mean, I like them in this movie, but I can't say like, like the other ones are just way more visually interesting. Yeah. No, I, I definitely you think just that have, that's definitely a case. You, I would definitely agree. So that's the problem, which is why I think like if you just kind of had them in like a pivotal side role yeah. as like some sort of like, like elemental guardians or something like that. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, it's like you got to do that or you got to do kind of a fire Rodan thing where yeah. like you you elevate it in some other way yeah. and like and like do be creative with how you can most effectively use the monster. You know what's actually a really a better example of this? Remember the in uh Majora's Mask, like the four I giants. To, I was about yeah. to make this reference. Yeah, yeah. The, the four giants that they have to summon and then they like bring the moon up or whatever. The gargantuas would be cuz yeah. you can easily see if they wanted to do a modern version of it, you have like the sea one, the earth one, the Air one, like you, yeah. you can do something like that, yeah. and um, I, I think that would definitely be cool. I, I would be open to something like that, or yeah, and like you can do it, like you can even do like something like uh, you know, what we've talked about with like the King Caesar thing, where it's like a race to like you know bring them to life or something, and right? It's, like, and mm. maybe there's two different sides who want them for two different purposes, yeah. Or, like, one that. wants to summon them to, like, defeat them so there's no protection. The other one wants to summon them so that they are protected. Yeah, I think, actually, like, if you did something like that, you could actually just straight up remake War for the Grand Gantuas. Yeah. Like, I, I think that if you... It would need more lore, I think, than yeah. what it's had. Like, I like this one. I don't know if this plot would cut it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it, it's a little bit too pedestrian. Yeah. Um, But... I, um, I, I, I that that sounded dismissive, but I but yeah, you kind of know what I mean. Yeah. I do still like the idea, even if it's not the gargantuan specifically. I really would like to explore like a the sort of like Frankenstein esque like someone creates their own 
giant monster. Yeah. Like, I think that would be a really fun... It would have been really fun to see that in any of our other two eras, and I think you could still do something with that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, I mean, that's really all I have to say about War for the... I mean, my final word is great show era film. I, I like It, it was yeah, such not, a good return to form, and I really, really enjoyed it. I'm a little, I'm a little disheartened that it, it that it's not once again much like some of the films like Rodan. It's not an easy, just oh, fine that mm-hmm. you can just pick it up. Like obviously, it's awesome that it's on HBO Max, even with the dub. But even yeah. again, like this is also one where it's like, if you're, you know, it's like it's not like a terrible dub. It's not obviously I still ideal to find. Oh yeah, no, we should talk about that. The dub was the dub was decent. Uh, I love it in these dubs when they're overdubbed too, when they have like group shots yeah like with like you know either like a crowd or like soldiers jumping out of a out of a thing and then you just hear like they for some reason felt they had to dub every single person in that thing where they're like yeah right jumping out let's go we can do this yeah come on let's get it like and it's like okay all right we get it it's a lot of people it's like like, it really isn't like the you know we definitely like we've talked about like the bad dubs like raids again as like a notoriously bad dub to it where it's like this one is i think it's because again because of the american co-production stuff and the history of that and it's history with capturing American actors and, and, and famous people and audiences and stuff like that. I think it's like not terrible. Obviously, like again, ideal. And it's like, yes, you know, just like with Kong, with King Kong versus Godzilla, I'm definitely interested with seeing the Japanese version of it. Um, you know, and especially because I enjoyed it so much. I right. definitely like to see it with like a proper score and stuff. But this is obviously not. It's not the worst thing you could share with somebody. I think it's also someone if like if you shared it with somebody as opposed to just telling them to watch it, I think it would be a good watch. Yeah. So big approved from the Bonzilla podcast. All right. Well, um, that's it. Right. I'm uh I'm done. I don't really have any upcoming announcements. Yeah. Um so uh Yeah, when you... when we next report on the mainline episode, it will be our, our get smart. That'll yeah. be like the next mainline episode. That'll be fun. I like get smart. Um, okay, well, until then, I'm done. You're done. We're done. BonzillaPod at gmail.com, twitter.com slash Bonzilla007, facebook.com slash Bonzilla007. Like and subscribe on iTunes and also SoundCloud. All right, well, until next time, bye bye. Keep on gargantuaning. <laughs>